Okay, Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to camp out for the rest of uh, my time with you uh, this morning. Uh, I think you'll find the verses we're, we're going to be unpacking today are highly, highly relevant for the average brummy. I mean, if you were to glance at the Birmingham Mail over the Easter weekend, uh, you'd have seen plenty of full-colour photographs of Easter egg hunts and daffodils, and lambs, and where do you find lambs in Birmingham? Uh, I think, yeah, butcher shop maybe, or something like that, but let's not go there. I told you the medication would start affecting my thinking sooner or later, but uh, all these pictures of what's going on uh, over Easter, it's like we live in a city that's pretty comfortable with the message of Easter. And what we're going to see in the passage we're going to look at today is that the disciples, when they heard the real message of Easter, they were startled and they were frightened. However, they were simultaneously filled with doubts and amazement and disbelief and eventually joy. I suggest the average person in our city experiences none of that when they think of Easter. A lot of people would simply say, well, look, I think the Easter story is vaguely inspiring. It means there could be a new beginning after disaster, there's kind of hope after darkness. I don't believe it literally. I mean, come on, you can't believe in a real physical resurrection nowadays. I think these stories, maybe they kind of morphed over the years. It's like Jesus' followers had such wonderful memories of his teaching as they preserved what he taught them. It's as though his spirit lived on in their midst. But over the years, they kind of got a little confused and thought he'd literally come back to life. Now, I don't believe that happened, but I love Easter. It's what people tend to think. As we're going to see, it's almost like Luke, 2,000 years ago, anticipated that kind of thinking and he challenges it head on. I want to pick up the story in verse 35 of Luke chapter 24. Then the two from Emmaus, that to the story last time, they told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they'd recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it is really me. Touch me and make sure I am not a ghost because ghosts do not have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. So what I mean about this passage challenging the popular view of Easter. There's not a daffodil or a lamb or a chocolate egg in sight. real message of Easter is Jesus not only died but was also physically resurrected. He didn't come back like a ghost. No, he had a body that could be physically touched and that could eat 
food. And Luke is saying, if you understand this the way the disciples back then understood it, you'll be moved through absolute terror, eventually to incredible joy, but you certainly won't merely sit there feeling comfortable. I want to show you the difference that this passage makes in these three areas. First of all, for the mind, it must change your thinking. Second, for the will, it must change the way you live. And third, for the heart, it must change the way you feel. First of all, it changes your mind, the way you think. Basically, if, I recognize it is a big if, you may not be convinced of this yourself, but if, just bear with me here, if Jesus physically did rise from the dead, that means he is Lord of all. And that's the terrifying part. It's a great illustration of how this plays out, the implications of this. Later on in Acts, in chapter 17, Paul, one of the the, the leading lights of the first church, he travels to Athens, uh, and we're told he uh, gets into some kind of uh, debate with a whole group of philosophers in Athens. And Paul rocks up and he says to them, I believe there's just one God, and he's a God who can't be confined in buildings or temples, and I believe all of us in this room, we need this God. And the philosophers loved it. I said, this is great because we're all here searching for God. Through all the different religions and philosophies and beliefs, we're all searching. Every religion, every belief, every philosophy tells us something interesting, gives us fresh insights and clues about how to find happiness and how to deal with our struggles in life. We love the search. We love a good debate. But then completely out of the blue, Paul ruins it all by saying, verse 30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. At which point, the whole debate is over. The philosophers, they get up, they stop the conversation, all discussion finished. It's like suddenly things get very, very uncomfortable because Paul is saying the search is over. While people are ignorant and everyone's looking around hoping they can find the meaning of life, the source of happiness and peace and fulfillment, then we can have these debates and it can all be quite enjoyable. But if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he is here with us right now, then it means this is the time for decision. It's like the philosophers knew that the resurrection meant Christianity was claiming something for its founder that no religion or no belief ever even came close to claiming. People back then didn't like it one bit. They still don't today. Now maybe you're thinking, Yeah, okay, I still don't quite get how the resurrection makes Jesus unique. I mean, don't other religions 
have stories of their heroes being resurrected. Doesn't even the Bible have other people who come back to life again? Wasn't uh, Elisha involved with the raising of a, a widow's son back in the Old Testament? Didn't even Jesus himself raise Lazarus from the dead? So what is it about Jesus' resurrection that suddenly makes him unique? Well, the answer is nobody was ever raised quite like Jesus. Think about it. Take the example of Lazarus, who have just referred to. Death momentarily lost its grip on Lazarus's life, but he would eventually die again. However, Jesus completely destroyed death, obliterated it. He rose never to die again with a brand new resurrected body. That's what the Bible teaches we just notice how here in verse 37, the disciples, they see Jesus, they are terrified. It's not simply because they saw Jesus, it's because the doors of the room they were in were locked. Jesus somehow passed through the locked door, passed through the walls to be in the room with them, which means Jesus now lives in a whole new realm, a realm beyond decay and aging, a realm beyond disintegration and death even time and space. This is showing us he's not like any other religious leader. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the son of God and he has utterly, utterly, utterly defeated death. It's a reason why John, one of Jesus' closest friends near the end of his life, when he meets Jesus again, he writes the account of it in Revelation chapter 1. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I now hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus wasn't just resuscitated. He didn't rise in order to die again. He died and he rose triumphant over the grave. He defeated the power of death once and for all. As a result, he says, I am the living one. I hold the keys to life. What that means for the philosophers in Greece, what that means for you and for me today. It means that the whole search is over. As Paul put it to the Greek philosophers, the day of repentance is here. Every other religion Every other philosophy, every other religious leader claims this is the way to find life. But Jesus shows up and he says, I am the life. Uh, I'm not another teacher pointing out clues that you can use on your individual search for life. No, I am the life to which all these other clues inevitably point. Listen, as long as we're all searching And who knows which of us could possibly be right? And everybody just has their own different religion or philosophy or way of thinking. If that's the case, well, I can sort of say, uh, I'm still a spiritual seeker, but I can live any way I want to. Because who knows who has the truth? But if Jesus says, no, I am not pointing to the truth, I am the truth. Not many pointing to the life, I am the life. And I've destroyed death to prove it. And the only way you'll ever get past all of this is through me. That means that the search is over. And it forces us to make a decision. 
John puts it like this in his first letter. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. Probably referring to this passage in Luke we began with. Touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. What John, what Luke are doing, especially Luke in the story we began with, is they're saying we know that Jesus saying he's risen from the dead is an outrageous claim. We we know that this is kind of a pluralistic society where everyone says, well, we all have our own religions and our own philosophies. We know no one else makes a claim quite like this one. You have to trust Jesus or die forever. We know this sounds outrageous. But what can we do? We saw him with our own eyes. We heard him with our own ears. We literally felt him with our own hands. We, we smelt the broiled fish, for goodness sake. What else can we do? Someone protests, Look, you're being so narrow-minded. How can you make such bigoted claims? Luke and John would say, we can't help it. We're merely telling you what we saw. Luke and John, the other gospel writers, they're saying, look, you can call us liars if you like. It could all be a lie. Of course it could. We haven't proved it's not a lie. Call us liars or change your thinking and believe us. But don't you dare dumb down what we're saying. Don't you dare say these are just nice, wonderful spiritual stories. You can either say we're lying or you can believe us But don't you dare say Jesus just rose in spirit and lives on, that Christianity is one religion among many. It is not. We will not give you that option. You can believe us, or you can say these guys are liars, but don't say anything else. Because we have seen the living one with our very own eyes, the one who has the keys to life and to death. It's the first thing. You see why this is ever so slightly terrifying? Don't you see why, actually, the whole message of Easter is not the least bit comforting, at least not to start with. It's terrifying. I mean, if Jesus is literally, physically raised from the dead with a brand new resurrected body that lasts for eternity, then he's Lord. And that demands a response from every single one of us. So the resurrection changes your mind, the way you think about everything. Secondly, it changes the will the way you live. It means, at the end of the day, you have a whole new way of relating to the world around you. What do I mean by that? Well, notice how Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to rescue you all away from the world. If you trust me, when you die, you'll leave all of this awful world of suffering, you'll live somewhere else and be happy ever after. That's not what he's saying. Through the resurrection, Jesus is saying, look, this material world that you live in right now is so important to me that I have broken into the world to redeem it. If you like, I'm going to give you a sneak preview of what you can look forward to when you die. Everyone who trusts in me will get a brand new resurrected body like mine. Now, if you believe 
in the physical resurrection. We're not just talking about eternal life one day, some kind of vague spiritual world that you kind of float around on clouds playing harps with the angels. No, we're talking about actual physical resurrection. We're talking about a redeemed new heaven and new earth, a physical place where you live in a real body. If you believe that, then on the one hand, you can live this life now without any regrets whatsoever. I think there are a whole lot of people in this city who are frantic because they are afraid, they're petrified, they're going to miss out. They're afraid they're going to miss out on a great family and great travel and great sex and a great career. They see all of these experiences and they want them, they crave them, they want the sexual ecstasy, they want the warmth and the love, they crave physical beauty and terrific food and all the latest gadgets to see the sights, to travel the world. They desperately want all of these things and as a result there is this constant fear, I don't want to miss out. But Jesus would say, don't be ridiculous. You're not going to miss out on anything by following the steps of the one who gave himself and who sacrificed himself and who served others and who put the needs of others ahead of his own. (coughs) Listen, the message of the resurrection is if you're going to be raised like Jesus one day with a brand new resurrected body, then you're going to miss out on absolutely nothing. Therefore, relax. Sacrifice. Give stuff away. Give yourself to other people. And don't stress about what you haven't got. A guy called C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, when you eat something that is so good, when you embrace someone who is so wonderful, when you hear some music that is unbelievably sublime, the physical energies that we call physical pleasures are just the faint, far-off results of the incredible rapture that God put into the created world when he made it. Now, I wish I could spend a bit more time unpacking that. I know the language is slightly old-fashioned, but basically he's talking about the fact that when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they created the world, they delighted in everything they were creating. All of creation is like this faint echo whisper of the ultimate glory and delight of God himself. C.S. Lewis goes on, he says, and even thus filtered, even though we don't see it all, these things that we have are too much for our present management. We can't even cope with the glory we have in this life. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, the source, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say the very finest food and wine at the best restaurant in Birmingham is nothing compared with the feasting that awaits us. You are going to miss out on nothing. And don't worry about taking photos on your next trip. 
They are worthless compared with the experiences you are going to have in the new heaven and the new earth. You don't have to look back with regret and say, oh, I wish I was still young, or I wish I was more beautiful, or I wish I still had my hair. You, on your best day, is nothing compared with what you're going to be like in eternity. What Jesus shows us through the resurrection is that our future is a physical future. So you don't have to be afraid of missing out on anything in this life. You can just relax. You needn't have any regrets. And you're set free to make sacrifices. Why? Because on the one hand, the resurrection means this world is not all there is. On the other hand, the resurrection also shows us that this world is incredibly important. This world is worth fighting for. You see, the resurrection gives you a whole different view of all of life. Jesus, he's the beginning of the new creation where everything will be put right. New bodies, new heavens, new earth, new world. No more suffering, no more tears, no injustice, no more man flu, no more pain. Now, if we have this future hope, we'll not simply look forward to the day when everything is put right and healed and restored and made new. We won't simply look forward to that in the now. We'll give ourselves to the work of seeing the earth restored today. Wherever God has placed us, in our schools, in our colleges, in our neighborhoods, our communities, in our workplaces, we'll be looking for opportunities to bring in the age to come whether it's praying for the sick or treating people with honor and dignity and respect, whether it's standing against unrighteousness and injustice or modeling what it looks like to bring mercy. Every day, wherever we are and whatever we're doing, we have countless opportunities to paint, if you like, pictures of what life will be like in the age to come. Have a listen how another guy, Tom Wright, puts it. This is an amazing quote. He says this, if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, not just for me. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. The resurrection means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, they're everywhere, God is not prepared to tolerate any such thing, and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Take away the resurrection, and Karl Marx is right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take away the resurrection, and Freud was right to say Christianity is mere wish fulfillment. Take away the resurrection, Nietzsche was right to say it was just for wimps. But have the resurrection, and you have all the courage, you have all the joy, you have all the sense of the importance of this world. If Jesus literally rose from the dead, on the one hand, you can relax. On the other hand, you will work with all your energy, all your strength, all your might for the good of this world because this world matters. So, not only does the resurrection of Jesus mean the terrifying challenge 
he's Lord. And that demands a response. It also means a challenging new lifestyle. This world matters. And thirdly and finally, it changes the heart, the way you feel about things. You notice how when Jesus appeared to his followers, he invited them to reach out and to touch him. What's the significance of that? Well, if you were to stand back and you were to read the whole gospel, if you were to read in one go all of Luke or all of Mark or all of John or all of Matthew, as you read the gospels, you are confronted with the very greatest character in all of literature. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, in Jesus, all of the heroes you've ever admired, looked up to and loved, they're all wrapped up and rolled into him. He's the beauty whose kiss can transform any beast. He's the knight who can slay any dragon. He's the hero dying for his brigade. He's the beauty of beauties, the knight of all knights, the hero of all heroes. And chapter by chapter, you find your heart going out to him. When you get to the end of the story, Every one of the gospel writers says something you cannot say at the end of any other story. I say, guess what? You can have this person. He's not a figment of imagination. He doesn't merely exist on the page. He's real. He's alive. You can know him for yourself. You can touch him. You know, at the time when Luke was writing his gospel, When holy men died, it was normal for their followers to make their tombs into a shrine, a place of worship, a place of pilgrimage. In fact, it's thought that there were at least 50 such tombs in Palestine round about the time when Jesus died. Yet we know that 150 years later, basically nobody was even sure where Jesus' tomb was. I know you can go to Jerusalem today and there'll be fraudsters, tour guides, sorry, who'll say, for £20, I'll be happy to lead you to the tomb of Jesus. But they don't know for sure. And the reason they don't know is because his followers, the first Christians, basically ignored the tomb. You think, that's awful. How disrespectful. How could that have happened? Well, think about it like this. If you've got children and they're still living at home, you don't need me to tell you there is nothing special about their room. You try and avoid their room. When you do walk into it, see the clothes and everything else just strewn over the floor, you say, what's going on? Why can't they even pick up their stuff? The room, the things, they mean nothing. But when you... But when your children one day go away to college or when they leave home and perhaps get married or, or worst of all, when a child actually dies their room suddenly becomes very important you you walk in you you don't look at their stuff and their mess the same way it's like when you don't have somebody their things in their room they can become a shrine now why is it that the christians didn't keep going to jesus tomb why didn't they turn it into a shrine a place of pilgrimage how could they have lost the tomb it's very simple They still had him. 
They utterly had him. They all did, every one of them. That's what the resurrection means. Jesus doesn't live on like the other great characters in history. Doesn't live on merely in the memory of his wise sayings or the things he did. He is risen from the dead and he is alive today. Touch me, he says. I want you to reach out and physically touch me. That was his invitation to his followers 2,000 years ago. And I believe that is his personal invitation to us, to you, in this room today. So here's what I want you to consider as I draw to a close. I want you to be honest. Don't, Don't switch off. This is for you. Do you have Jesus the way the first Christians had him? Has Jesus completely changed your life? The way you think, the way you live, the way you feel about everything? Or you say, wait a minute, I, I don't really know what you're talking about. I mean, it sounds a bit extreme, frightening for me. Then you don't truly have him. You, you might know a whole lot about him. You might know the words to the songs. But you don't really know him. They had him, and so can you. But you're going to have to be willing to go through the first two points of this talk if you want to get to the third point. You have to be willing, first of all, to let Jesus be your absolute Lord. Second, you have to let him change your life and then respond to his invitation to touch and see. He's Lord. He will change your life, and you really can have him even today.